himself as in Solomon, and ever would be, according to what God said. So God gave him a tremendous amount of wisdom, of understanding, uh, of how things work, what needs to be done when, and the wisdom and handling relationships. I think I referred to Proverbs and watched during the many things he wrote down, which are wise and godly in their content and very, very deep and have many, many meanings and many, many different situations. So I wanted that preface to this book. Uh, the book of the key Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, of course, has been looked at in many, many different ways, and perhaps there is something to learn from each approach. But the way I uh, choose to approach it and going into it today is that he was a very wise man who had lived at this point most of his life. He had seen it all. He had done it all in his own words. He'd been there. He bought the T-shirt. He'd done everything. <clears throat> so he sat down here to analyze it and what is truly important, what is not important, and all of the in-betweens, really. Uh, he was perhaps a jaded old man in some respects because of all that he had been through, because he tried things that were good and he tried things that were bad. Some have felt that Solomon went so far from God before his death, uh, having been led astray by uh, the paganism of his many wives that he would miss out on the kingdom of God. I think Adam and Adam, Solomon and uh, Esau and Judas are the four that are mentioned the most when people build up who might be lost and who is not. But uh, I don't choose to look at it that way, and I don't think that Scripture supports that view. Uh, all those individuals mentioned had some serious problems. Whether any of them were ever truly converted or not uh, remains to be seen, and it is certainly God's judgment. But God chooses in the Bible to only mention those who did qualify. He does not say in any terms or in any way that someone did not make it into eternal life. That is a judgment that he has reserved to himself, and any time anyone says, well, so-and-so is not going to be in the kingdom of God, uh, they are putting themselves in the place of God and making a judgment that is not theirs to make. Uh, God considers everything. He ponders the heart. He knows what level of conversion. He knows which miles are walked and which moccasins. And he knows how he is working and has worked in the past with each individual who's ever lived if he indeed has even worked with them at all up to this point. So God is very positive, and he makes many positive statements in the New Testament about uh, it being his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, that that's something he desires, uh, and mentions many who will be in the kingdom of God, showing a very positive approach, and he wants us to have a positive approach as well. He makes it very clear in Ezekiel 33 and other places, it's not where we've been, but where we wind up that counts. Uh, if we've sinned greatly in life and repent, then that is forgiven. If we don't sin early in life and then turn from God and sin greatly at the end of our lives, uh, then we'll be judged on that basis. So he makes it very clear that there's room for and space for repentance, 
even mentions that specifically. So no matter how much off-track Solomon might have gotten in some respects, uh, judgments to the gods. It's not ours to give. Now, in approaching Ecclesiastes, I think it's important to realize that he was approaching this basically from a human standpoint of the experiences of human life. Now, he does mention God, and he has some statements to make about God before we get to the end of the book. But he basically writes it from the standpoint of the things that a human being goes through while they're on the face of this earth, not necessarily always from a godly standpoint, but just life itself. The human experience and all of the ins and outs of it. So we look at the book of Ecclesiastes as something to give us insight into what works and what doesn't work, and we'll see that he has much experience in both sides of that coin as we go through. So this is entitled Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, which in Hebrew means uh, a public spokesman or someone who conveys and teaches, uh, I suppose good or bad, it just simply means the preacher or the teacher or the spokesman. So here he was speaking to all Israel and via the Word of God, which God chose clearly to put in the Bible, to all humankind who wants to pick it up and read it. And I submit that you would not have to be close to God or even understand God in that respect to read the book of Ecclesiastes and come away with something to think about very deeply, or some things, I should say, not just one, but, but many things to mull over in terms of what works in life and what does not than a purely human experience. So let's start in here. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, came in Jerusalem. So here again, a man of high station in life, uh, the very king of Israel, um, who had learned from his father David, had been in the courts and the uh, rulership line all of his life. So he knew the ins and outs of all politics, of all government, of all and everything, that goes on in life. So here's a man of very broad experience who then added his own life and experience to what he has to impart to us. And the first thing he says, right off the bat, is vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So he emphasizes it uh, right off the bat, that all is vanity. And Vanity isn't just how you look at yourself in the mirror and think you're good-looking or whatever. Vanity or vanities simply means that there is really nothing of value, that nothing is lasting. Nothing in this life is something that will exist beyond this life. So whatever you do uh, is in that sense, vain, unless it has some greater meaning, as we'll find out later on. And even some of the good things he will mention and talk about uh, are temporary. So vanity has something to do with temporary as well, something that will not last. <laughs> what profit has a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? 
And he's leading up to how long does it last? What good ultimately does it do? Uh, you can work and work and work. You can spend your whole life working, and then you die. As he begins to explain here in verse 4, what good did it do when uh, you're gone? You, as an individual, whoever you might be, have a memory bank of experiences, things that you've gone through in life, things that you observed, things that you have thought, all kinds of experiences and adventures and various things in your life that you have done, but it's pretty private, isn't it? You do explain to others sometimes some of the things you've been through, uh, anecdotes about your past and so on, but you're the only one that has that memory bank. And when you die, it simply goes away. No one else remembers what you remember. So it's just simply gone. And he puts that in those terms here in verse 4. One generation passes away, and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. In other words, it continues to go on. But we do not. We die. So we're temporary. And in that sense, vain, because there's nothing lasting about our lives as we live them out and do our 70 or 80 or 90 or 30 or whatever it turns out to be. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastes to his place where he arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns about to the north. It whirls about continually and the wind returns again according to the circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not there, and under the place from where the rivers came, there they return again. So you have that water cycle, they call it, where the clouds drift over the earth, give forth their rain, the rain goes into the ground, runs out into the rivers into the sea, where it is uh, again evaporated and goes into the clouds, so you have that cycle going on. And he's saying... This process goes on, it's been going on for thousands of years, and it doesn't end. And God has promised us that it wouldn't during this period of time that we're here on this earth until Christ returns and beyond. But we don't. We live so many years and then we die. And Paul even spoke of this, but he says, if we have hope in this life only, then we are of all men most miserable. Speaking of the things we go through in life, trying to follow God's way, trying to be Christian, and to think and act as Christ acted, and that is a very, very difficult task to try to fulfill for any human being. It's much easier to roll with the flow of what's going on in the world or what we might want to do, and not give any regard or pay any attention to God and His ways, and life would be much easier uh, in some respects. Sin can be pleasurable. It can be fun. It can be exciting. There are penalties that are there uh, that accrue whether you want them to or not. But life is easier if you don't have to worry about how you think, how you act, how you speak, and whether it is godly in comparison to your own carnal human mind, which is ungodly by its very nature. So it's easier to drift along uh, without going through what we have to go through and trying to bring every thought and subject, subject 
uh, and there was objection of Christ uh, would be the kind of thought he would have. So their reactions are spiritual and godly rather than carnal and human and temporary and spiteful and vengeful and negative and all the things that go through a human mind and come out the tongue. We know we shouldn't say this. We know we shouldn't talk about so-and-so that way. But we do it anyway. Because we don't do what Christ told us to do and what Paul was telling us to do. But we, for some reason, justify ourselves into all kinds of things that are ungodly in the very nature and the way we act and what we say. <laughs> so Paul was recognizing that and saying, you know, we could just throw it on downstream. It would be easy to roll with the flow, but we're trying to go the other direction, which is opposite of everything on the earth. Satan is the ruler of the earth. He's deceived all mankind, and he has been going in a totally different direction than God is going. And it would be much easier to go that way. And when you choose to go the other direction, uh, you usually lose your friends, your relatives. Uh, they just cannot understand why you're doing what you're doing, and they've all experienced that to one degree or another. <clears throat> so the cycle goes on, but we do not. And as he says here in verse 8 in Ecclesiastes 1, echoing pretty much what Paul uh, said that we just discussed, he says, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. Uh, everything, it seems in life, is difficult, it's hard, uh, whether it be health issues, mental issues, work issues, play issues, relationship issues. Uh, it's full of labor, he says, or laborious or difficult, I think would be good synonyms to use there. They're all full of travail and difficulty. And we, we can't utter it. It's just hard to explain how hard life can be with all the trials and troubles and tribulations that it involves. And God laid that on us after the Garden of Eden and said that our life would be difficult, that making a living would be difficult, and by the sweat of our brow we would have to work and labor and make the land produce so we would have something to eat, and that a woman's life would be difficult not only in probably bearing children, but in even rearing children, because everything from that point forward would be satanic in origin. God is not ruling the earth right now in, in terms of day-to-day ruling. He has backed off. He has allowed Satan to rule the earth, <laughs> and Satan is doing that. Christ defeated Satan uh, in the temptation that he would not take over the rulership of the world at that time. He left it in Satan's hands. And Satan has done everything he can to stimulate war, uh, whether it be on a countrywide or international basis, or whether it be between any two human beings. Uh, he wants war. He wants conflict. He wants difficulty. And he injects thoughts uh, into the air and into the airwaves that affect us. So, life is full of travail and hardship, no matter how good life may be in some respects. Underneath it all, 
It's just difficult and intended to be that way so that we would learn that this way of life doesn't work out too well and that this human life doesn't work out well. So it states that right here at the very beginning that everything is plain and temporary and full of strife, contention, labor, difficulty. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You always want to see more. You always want to hear more. The five senses always want to be fulfilled in one way or another, and yet it never happens. The fulfillment is never there. You might be excited about this, but when it's over, you're not excited anymore. So you want to get excited about something else. So we go through all the above. You're never satisfied with one book or one movie or one meal or whatever it might be. Uh, you always want more. So we have restless eyes and ears, restless hands, restless bodies, restless minds. That's and always looking for something, and we don't always know what. We can't utter it. There are things that are beyond our comprehension, our ability to grasp of why things are the way they are. And sometimes we might be discouraged, frustrated, or down, and think, well, why are things the way they are? And it's very hard to pinpoint precisely why the conditions that you are stuck under are the way they are. And you can blame it on relatives, you can blame it on friends, you can blame it on church or business, you can blame it on whoever or whatever you want to blame it on. But ultimately, it all comes back to you. We are the only ones who can deal with the emotional, the mental, the difficulties that we have, whatever they might be, and in any way resolve them. You can't change anybody else. You can't change conditions very often. The only thing you can change is you. But we spend a lot of time and energy trying to change others or trying to pinpoint the faults of others or whatever avenue we take to try to find some kind of satisfaction and the only place you'll find happiness ultimately is in your own mind. The happiness is not a state of the union, it's a state of the mind. People go from even from state to state, county to county, and city to city, country to country, looking for happiness, and they always find that they got themselves along. So it doesn't matter where you are, or a new start, or another new start, or whatever it is, you always have you to deal with. And people will not treat you the way you want treated. People will not respect you the way you want respected. People will not do for you what you want done. And you will never be happy with all that people do. So the only place you can find any contentment is within your own head. And that has to be from a godly direction or you won't ever find it even there. And that's what he's saying here. It's, it's full of strife. It's full of contention. It's full of difficulty. And until you admit that the problems you have really are mostly in your own head, your own emotions, you'll never deal with them, and you'll never overcome them. You'll never find contentment and peace until you come to peace with yourself.
and thereby come to peace with others. As long as you're judgmental, as long as you are negative in your thinking of others, it upsets you. It frustrates you. You don't upset somebody else with what you're thinking. You might, to some degree, upset them with what you say, uh, because a whisper separates even super friends, as Proverbs says. But you really are hurting yourself. When we choose to hate someone, we cloud and frustrate our own mind. doesn't bother them particularly. The one that bothers is the one doing the hating. So it is your own eye and your own ear and your own emotions, your own senses that are not satisfied with other people, with conditions, with whatever it is that's around you. That has to come from within. He goes on to say in verse 9, The thing that has been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. I'm speaking here in terms of conditions, of people, of attitudes, of history repeating. He's not talking about iPods, obviously. I doubt if he had one. Uh, although there, has, there are indications here and there in archaeology that there may have been a very highly uh, technical society, perhaps even before the flood. And then they may have even had jet airplanes and various things of that nature. We uh, ran studying runways in South America and various things all over the earth that have people speculating. They even found what they think are crude computers in various places. So who knows what it was and what might have turned over and been buried. I uh, realize we were in the horse and buggy age up until the late 1800s, essentially, and in only a hundred, well, less than a hundred years, really, from the time the student engine really got going until we were flying in airplanes was, I would guess, less than 50 years. And the amount of technology that we have developed on this earth has all come within essentially 150 years. So there were, what, really, what, 1,600 years, or I forget now, uh, over 1,000 years anyway, uh, prior to the flood. And men were much smarter then. And men did not die with their uh, memories going with them at that time. They were close to a thousand years. So that memory was there, and whatever they learned and knew, they could increase. And pass that knowledge around to younger ones coming along, and they not die out themselves. So uh, if we, in our degenerate state at the end, could have developed what we developed in such a short time, it could have been developed very easily back then. So I'm not speculating necessarily that that is the case, but we certainly cannot uh, completely dismiss the idea either. So uh, when he says there's no new thing under the sun, we may be referring to uh, conditions and the pattern and repeat of human experience because human lives are very, very similar in what we go through from generation to generation. And uh, you may think that you've learned some things in your life, you've gone through experiences that you can pass on to your children and your grandchildren, and their lives might be different because they might not make the same mistakes you made. But chances are uh, they won't listen very well, and they'll probably make mistakes themselves, perhaps even some of the very same mistakes 
there. Some of yours may have been so bad that they will avoid them. Uh, you never know. Sometimes an alcoholic is started by alcoholic children, and sometimes an alcoholic has children who wouldn't touch the stuff because uh, they've seen the results. So you never know, but even if they're not alcoholic, after you were one, uh, they'll probably find something else to do that will cause their lives grief and misery as well anyway. So what he's really saying here, I think, is in terms of life itself, and that seems to be more the overall context, not in uh, inventions, let's say, or patents, but in terms of human life being repeated over and over again <clears throat> with the same type of experiences. There's, there's nothing you can do that hasn't been done before, and probably in the generation right before you, somewhere in your family, no matter what it is that you choose to do. So, if you think you can come up with something new, now uh, well, someone's already been there done that. There's another, there is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Uh, as I said earlier, you die, your memory bank goes away. Sometimes people write some things down, such as what uh, Solomon wrote right here. So that some things might be remembered, but essentially it's true that when people die, their memory is gone, and not only is their personal memory gone, but people's memory of them also disappears. And it's amazing, even in families, how one generation can hardly remember the previous generation, and if you go back to great-grandparents, uh, there's hardly anything left that they knew or did or or even about them, unless you got a family Bible with their names, probably they are not even preserved. So, you don't have to go very far back for it to be almost completely forgotten, even in your own family, the type of people that were there and what they did. I knew my grandparents, I knew one of my great-grandparents at least, and used to listen to her when I was a little guy, but uh, the generation before them, very, very little is known, and even when I quizzed grandmothers and parents, they didn't know. They kind of knew what part of the country we were from, but unless you're a Mormon going into genealogy, they left you a Mormon, but going into genealogy a lot. You don't even know who they were, and if you do find their names and make the connections and the birth records, you still don't know anything about the people. Uh, so what kind of people were they? You can only guess. And even archaeologists will go back into history and go back thousands of years and dig around in the lands, try to piece together the kind of people that lived there, uh, what their lives might have been like. And most of it is, frankly, imagination and fantasy. Uh, they can tell a little bit that they can't reconstruct the whole culture. They can't understand they do a lot of guessing, and when they write it down, and you don't know whether they're right or whether they're wrong or whether they're even the right part of the world trying to read into it, that really is not even there. That's done in the Middle East a great deal on the so-called holy map. They dig and dig and dig and can find no evidence of Solomon or of David. And a lot of things that the Bible talks about, and it is completely different in the Bible than what they're finding there. And the archaeologists then 
So the Bible isn't any good because it doesn't match what they're finding. And they don't realize they're looking in the wrong part of the world is the reason it doesn't fit the Bible. But they're not about to admit that, so they keep giving you false stories. And they say the Bible is no good because it doesn't fit there. Well, no, it doesn't fit there. So they don't know much, do they? They they They're not even the right part of the world for what they're trying to discover. So how much is remembered of past things? And the Bible itself is just a very brief thumbnail sketch of things of the past, and a few stories are brought out here, but not too much from any of that is really known. So there's no remembrance of former things, and there won't be for even the things that come after you and I, unless, of course, the kingdom of God is here. And then it says that things from the past will be forgotten anyway. They're not worth remembering. So that would tell us in itself that this life is pretty, pretty futile and pretty frustrating because when conditions get better, no one would even bother to care to go back and look at what had transpired previously because it's so little in comparison to what shall be that who cares? Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king of Israel in Jerusalem. So he reiterates who he was, and then goes on to explain a little more about himself. I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. So here was a man who was independently wealthy. He had at his behest, at his beck and call, all the records of the past, of all that was going on within uh, the nation, he had reporters coming and going on horses, getting uh, news back and forth by coast, like we had the Army Express in early America. They used horses to run messages back and forth. So he had, it is, he has everything, basically. We even read that he had ships going around the world trading in all kinds of exotic things from all over the world. If you look at the list, they came from different continents. So, uh, he was in position to know as much as can be known, or could be known at that time, about all things done under the heavens on the earth. So, he was a very curious man, and a man, I would say, a very high intellect when you read the Proverbs, when you read Ecclesiastes, uh, a few of the Psalms. He was a man with a great capacity of mind and ability. So probably very few who had his level of mentality and then add to that the great gift of God of more wisdom than anyone has ever had. So when this man set his heart to seek and search out all things now under heaven, there was a wide panoply of subjects for him to study, to search out, to determine about life, about everything done on this earth, under the heavens. This sole travail has God given to the sons of man to be exercised or tested or pulled on therewith or thereby. So hearkening back again to uh, Eden, where God did put sole travail and trial and difficulty into this life. 
uh, through much tribulation, and it became the of God. And so the scriptures are just like that, showing that uh, life is intended to be difficult. So if we get discouraged or frustrated or depressed, we need to realize that what we are going through is common to all men. That no one has gone through life without travail, without sorrow, without frustration, that have things not going their way. And we can take encouragement by that, in that no one's picking on us. That's just the way life is. And then we are quite capable of making it more difficult for ourselves, as the Solomon is the same to continue here. So he set out to use the wisdom he had been given to discern everything he could about life. And recognizing at the same time that he was still a travail. I think, as I said last week, he had observed his father David, whom God had chosen to be king of Israel, that other people did not think that David is the one who should be in charge. That's common whenever God affects someone, whether it be Moses or Abraham or whoever it may have been in the past, the prophets. Uh, when God appointed them, there were always those who disagreed. They did not like God's judgment. They thought they themselves were better qualified and more righteous and less sinful and uh, whatever we go through the idolater's mind of how much better he thinks he would be at it if he were just given that opportunity. We've seen it in the church where people wanted to be deacons or elders or ministers or whatever position they chose that they thought they should be in. So he had seen David and all that David experienced. He had seen David's own sons uh, try to kill him, try to uh, create conspiracies to get him removed from office. He had seen uh, one of his brothers uh, violate all of David's wives when David was out of town and do it in a public way. Uh, David then did not go back to those wives ever again, but uh, some of different ones as time went on. But Solomon had seen what happened to David, and David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who followed God. He had seen his father uh, make mistakes. Uh, some of his biggest mistakes were before Solomon was born, but he knew of them. So he saw all the travail and the grief and just the day-to-day trials and troubles of leadership and trying to make good judgments and trying to settle fights and arguments between tribes and peoples. So he had seen the conflict that was in government. He had seen that even God's own called-out people, Israel, still had serious problems. The leaders had serious problems. But... God had put David there, and God did not allow anyone to remove David. And God had put Solomon there. Now, Solomon didn't always do God's will. But God was working with Solomon, and what happened in Solomon's life, God oversaw, and he protected him, and he kept him in the position that he had put him in, in spite of all those who were against him. People who hurried him to the point of being very, very willing to kill him to get him out of office so that they could take over. That is just the history of Israel. It's the history of the world. 
And frankly, it's the history of the church today. You don't have to go back very far to see enemies of Herbert Armstrong within the administration and even high in the administration and then those who were without, who were plotting and planning to get rid of a man God had put in charge. Did Herbert Armstrong make mistakes? Did he have problems? Was he less than Christ-like at times? Yes, he was. Uh, was it their place to conspire to replace him? No, it wasn't. God put him there, and God could have removed Herbert Armstrong in one breath that he so chosen. And that no one else could remove him. And there are those who tried very hard to do so. Uh, in some cases, they themselves got removed. And then to, when God was done, and Herbert Armstrong was done, and the work went into confusion, and now, again, God was chosen, quite clearly in Scripture, to have others carry on a different work, which is outlined in the Bible and which we understand. So that work is yet ahead of us, and God has chosen who he wants to be there, and he will take care of them. And he can remove them at any moment he so chooses, but that's his judgment, not yours or mine. So we need to be very, very careful. We don't put ourselves in a position uh, of self-righteousness and idolatry and get in God's way, because that's not in work. So... He saw the prevail. He knew God gave us the prevail to go through, and then we all learn. We tend to learn slowly. That's the way human beings tend to learn. That's in a while something speeds up the process for us. But by and large, we tend to be pretty slow in learning. And we go through all kinds of prevail. Some of it from outside sources, and a lot of most of it, I think, uh, comes from us and bring our own troubles upon us more than anyone else brings them upon us. <clears throat> so this thirteen he says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all this temporary and vexation of spirits. Life is just tough. And you have to be tough in order to survive life. And certainly in order to thrive in life, you have to be tough-minded. You have to be learn to be tough with emotion. You have to learn to be tough with yourself. And you have to learn to be kind and gentle and merciful and patient with others. At the same time, you're being tough with yourself. But even with yourself, you have to not only learn to be tough and, and make the changes you need to make and work on yourself very difficult, very hard, but you also at the same time have to learn to be patient and merciful with yourself, lest you become so discouraged you give up. So patience and mercy extends, first of all, in that sense, to others, because we had often the biggest problem, but sometimes we even have a big problem with ourselves in being patient and merciful. And, but then... If we learn to be patient and merciful with ourselves, we can take that too far and come to the point where we say, well, I'll just be patient with myself and God will be patient with me and you'll just have to accept me as I am. And he doesn't intend to accept you as you are. He says very clearly over and over to them that overcome what I grant to say with me and my child. 
He says that to have seven in Revelation 2 and 3, not just to one or two, and uh, not to just a six, but to all seven. No matter where you are in God's church, or how you think those chapters apply in those desires of the church, every one of them, throughout the ages, throughout the end time, are entailed to overcome. So God does not let us sit idly by and be that patient and that merciful with ourselves. We have to be tough enough on ourselves to do what is necessary to change. And that motivation often has to come from God. We have to go to Him and even ask for the desire to change. Because often we like things the way they are. We like us the way we are. There may be things about us we don't like, and maybe we'll look at changing those, but you probably have your pet attitudes and your pet sins and your deep ruts in your mind and emotions and memory of things that you are comfortable with that others may not be comfortable with, God may not be comfortable with, but you are. And we don't like to break our own comfort level, now do we? We want to remain where we are. We like the status quo. We don't want to feel impelled or pushed to change or to grow. And that's where the expressions like, now you've done quit preaching and started meddling, come from. It's because if you push people too much to make the changes that indeed we all need to make, you start needing resistance. They don't want to hear it, or they don't want to hear it again, or whatever, but there is resistance there. And they don't want you meddling in their lives and their emotions. But the Bible does. And if you read the Bible, uh, you're going to step on people's toes. It's just there, because the Bible steps on people's toes. It's just that they don't usually, at least, want to blame it on God or His Word. They want to blame it on the one who's... Uh, reading God's Word and explaining God's Word. So that's where they tell their language and their ire and their disgust and their frustration and so on. You, know, you can't kill the message, you kill the messenger. That's what they did to all the prophets in the past and that's what they'll do in the present and in the future. And that is very clear from many, many scriptures. So, he says... I've seen it all. It's vanity and it is vexation. It's difficult. You can't, it seems, go through a day without being vexed by something or another. Verse 15 uh, explains the futility again. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting or lacking cannot be numbered. You can't bring it up to the right numbers. It's, it's supposed to be a 10 and it's a 6. And you can't somehow make up those other four numbers and make it the way you want it. And if something's crooked, it's very, very difficult to make it straight. Take a pick off a tree. You've got some around me right here. And it's very rare to find a truly straight stick. But try straightening one. <laughs> it grew that way. And if it's dry and, and dead, it'll break before it's straight. And a lot of times people are the same way. They'll break before they straight. Or they'll give up. Or they'll quit. Or they'll whatever they decide to do. So he says, if government's crooked, how are you going to straighten it out? 
If church is crooked, how are you going to straighten it out? If you're crooked, or somebody, your friend, or your relative, or your wife, or your husband's crooked, awfully hard to change it, isn't it? Uh, as I said in the series, I talked about Christ looking for a perfect bride, him being the perfect husband. Uh, we, as human beings, have often tried to change our mates, uh, make them different, or think, well, I like this and this and this, but I'll change that. And 50 years later, you haven't got a change yet. Uh, maybe you've kicked around here and there and done a little, but you haven't really gotten a lot of things changed because that's just very, very difficult to do. And even when you're trying to change yourself, it's a very arduous, slow process most of the time to change the way you think, the way you react. And it doesn't matter how many times we're told that we shouldn't put people down and make judgments and be self-righteous and put ourselves above them. It is so human to do that we find that we don't change that. We just keep on and on and on, and yet God says he despises it and hates it. It causes division, and he says that causing division in any way is an abomination. That's as bad a sin as there is. It's an abomination to God. So gossip and division is abominable to God. And yet we accept it in our daily lives. We let each other do it to others in our presence, but we do nothing about it. It doesn't make any difference how many times the preacher reads it or says it or calls it what it is. We still indulge ourselves because we're not willing to change and do what God does and do what our grandmother told us. You can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything. How wise that is, and how, how many of us heard it from our grandmothers and our mothers, and still indulge ourselves. How slowly we change, and how much vexation of spirit it is, and how difficult it is to straighten out that which is crooked, and that is found running, and bring it up to par. Perfect thing, I commune with my own heart, saying, so he's looked at life, he's looked at people, and then he sat and looked introspectively at himself, his own heart, saying, Well, I am come to great estate, heart, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem, heart. Yes, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he began to talk to himself to assess who he was, where he was, what his station in life was, to let his mind turn on that, to indulge himself in thinking about his past, his history, his present, his future. Uh, well, here I am. I have everything you could possibly have as a human being, great estate. I have more wisdom than God gave me than any before. And I have now having lived most of my life out, great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So, as we'll see a little later, he, there's nothing that Solomon hadn't tried. So here's an expert on life as a human being. I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So he had looked at both sides, both ways of life, of living in wisdom, and godliness and responsibility 
And all those things that bear with that you had a good person, a nice person. And then he would also sought madness and folly. Then crazy things. Crazy adventures. Then everything that his fantasies, his mind, could conjure up as to something that he might want to do, or saw somebody else do and decided to copy, or whatever. He had done crazy things as well. He doesn't explain about well, he does about drink, he does about drugs, or various other things, maybe. But whatever there was out there, Solomon tried it. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. So, he tried living the right way, a good way, a, a way recognized by man as a, a good way to live. And he had lived on the other side of the tracks, too, to see what that was like. And whichever side of the tracks he was on, he said it was vexation of spirit. There were conflicts, there were doubts, there were difficulties, there were problems with any kind of life you chose to live. And he, at one time or another, chose every avenue you could go down. And he explains that in verse 18. There is much wisdom, there's much grief. The more you understand about what really goes on in the world, in governments, in politics, in business, in sports, in games, whatever part of life and culture you examine, the more you know about it, the more grief and frustration you're going to see. I mean, a lot of people put their lives into sports, baseball, basketball, football, whatever. And then they find that some players throw games, some teams throw games, some umpires skip right off and throw games, some people under and play over and play football, so you know, whatever else it is, you'll find that there's nothing pure, there's nothing really good, that there's grief to be had, even in entertainment and sports and things that you think people could do uh, without having to fight and do things wrong and cheat. But it's everywhere. So the more you know about something, the more you look into it, the more grief you're going to see. The more you understand about life, the more you're going to see the grief and the misery and the frustration and vexation that people face. So in wisdom, even, there is grief and difficulty. He that increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more knowledge you have, the more you see that creates sorrow. And Christ was the same way. He was a man who had perfect balance in his personality, perfect obedience to God's ways. He knew everything that needed to be known about how to control his emotions and feelings and not let them get out of hand or think the wrong things or do the wrong things. He was just perfectly balanced in every way. And yet it says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wasn't so much himself in most respects, but what he saw going around with more knowledge the more experience he had walking the face of this earth, the more misuse and abuse and murder and mayhem and stealing and lying and cheating and all the things that he saw going around him, the vanity 
the more sorrowful he became. And I think even having to deal with life itself, because it says he was tempted in every point, like as you and I are, and he was the only one who never gave in to any of that at all, but even that had to make him sorrowful to some degree, the fight that he had to fight to maintain the sinless state, to maintain his absolute, perfect, balancing personality and emotion. That was a very, very difficult line to walk when we had human nature, which is absolutely contrary to God. And he was the only one by far and away who controlled it, controlled it completely. So the rest of us are very, very way beneath that and struggling with ourselves. So, but even he found difficulty with that, and it made him a man of sorrows and acquainted him with grief. He felt as much fear as a human being can fear or feel at the time it came for him to die. And he went out and prayed and prayed and sweated blood while his disciples who loved him so much slept. And then he had to go and be tortured beyond what any man has ever been tortured and then died a very painful and shameful death. So he felt that fear of dying, that human emotion, in the way that any human being who's faced it through disease or accident or however they faced it, they faced it. So he was certainly acquainted with grief and the knowledge that he had, which is greater knowledge than anyone had, uh, increased his sorrow as well. So Solomon saw a lot of this himself. Let's go to chapter 2. He said, I said in my heart, Go to now. I will prove you with more. I'm tired of vexation. I'm tired of conspiracies to remove me. I'm tired of of uh, threats of murder, I'm tired of enemies, I'm tired of responsibility, I'm tired of being a good boy, uh, I am just going to enjoy the good life. I am going to laugh and pray. That's basically what the means here, at most I mean. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. I will just have fun. I will make my life just one of seeking pleasure of all kinds and have fun. And he tried that. And he said, Behold, this also is vain. It doesn't get me anything. It doesn't get me anything. I still wake up and I'm still me. No matter how much fun I had or whatever I did to try to have fun, I still wake up and I'm still Solomon every morning. So it wouldn't last no matter what he did, which seemed the fun at the moment, it just didn't last. I mean, yeah, you go on your bucket list, you make a list of all the things you want to do before you die, and uh, maybe you go out and achieve most or even all of those. And then you die. It's all forgotten. It's vexation. It's vanity. It's, oh, I was fun at the time, but how long does it last? And you're dead and gone. Somebody else gets to do their bucket list. I said of laughter, it was mad. And at mirth, what does it do? What does it gain? What does it accomplish? You can laugh and play. People go to the bar every night, some of them. And there they tell jokes and they laugh and they drink and they think they're having a good time. And then they wake up tomorrow morning 
make me hungover, make me frustrated, uh, the joy is gone, now i got to go to work, or whatever, and seeking laughter and pleasure and fun and games every night, that doesn't do. That doesn't give you. I sat in my heart to give myself to wine. So I'll just be a drunk then. Um, I can make you happy. Strong drink can make you happy. I guess I'll just give myself to wine. To a certain degree, but he went back a little bit, he says. And to lay hold on folly, I give myself to wine, yet attaining my heart with wisdom. I try to maintain or stay acquainted with wisdom, even though I become a falling down drunk, let's say. If you give yourself to wine, you don't get a little buzz. When you give yourself to it, you get drunk. And if he set his mind to drink wine, I think he was the kind of person who would do a truly good job of seeking the wine. But at the same time, trying to hang on to his wisdom and to lay hold on folly. So I drink wine, and I will get hold of foolishness and folly and all the things that I can think of that people do supposed to be to have fun. I will grab hold on I will not turn loose. I will go to the utmost to have fun. But I might see there was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. So he says, I'm going to explore all the avenues here. I seek wisdom, and yet I find that when I look for wisdom and understanding, uh, that's vanity and a vexation and causes grief and sorrow. So now I'll eat, drink, and be merry, and that doesn't work out so well either. So he said, I pursue both avenues, and then I'm going to do anything else that I might want to do. I will have anything I want to have. He begins to explain that in verse 4. And he was in a position to do it. I made me great works. So he was wealthy enough. He had everybody in his beck and call to dream up, to fantasize anything that he could build or want and then have it produced. Nothing was beyond his capacity to think of and produce. So he made not little works, not medium-sized works, but great works. I builded many houses. He didn't just have a palace, as we read about, but he made him houses. He may have had houses on several continents, for all I know, because he had ships going all over the world. Did he go on those ships at any time? I think it's very possible that he did. Uh, he was the Aristotle Onassis of his day. He had the, not out of the great yachts, as we would know them perhaps, but he had huge ocean-going ships that could carry cargo. People think they didn't have big boats back then. Right? Go back and read the size of the ark. We didn't build something that size until, that was around the middle of 1850, 1860, somewhere in there, before we were on modern technology, could build a boat back there. So, 
and Solomon could do anything he wanted to do on this earth as a human being. So he had houses here, there, and everywhere, wherever he wanted them. I planted new vineyards. He didn't just go down and buy himself a bottle or a box of wine. And here was a man who planted his own vineyards and probably got the very best grapes and the very best vineyards and made the best wine that could be made because in his position, why not have the best? I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. Probably brought fruit trees from around the world and had every kind of fruit you can imagine. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that brings forth trees. So he had an, uh, an extensive irrigation system with pools and canals to water these trees. Uh, various trees need varying amounts of water and and there was desert around Jerusalem even then to some degree. There were palm trees. It wasn't the reddest tropical region in the world uh, where the true Jerusalem is and was, I think, in southern Utah. So uh, it may have been redder then and lower. Uh, it's risen, and uh, the original site does not have palm trees, although there are some of them easy hours dry. But nonetheless, we did some irrigating. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house, and uh, in the margin it's in the, uh, the Hebrew it says sons of my house, whether they were his own sons or the sons of servants, uh, that probably both in this case, he certainly had enough wives. Uh, you know, now that's even illegal, and under the old covenant, uh, because of the hardness of men's hearts, Deuteronomy 24 clearly shows that men were able to live polygamously, and uh, even a David, who had quite a few wives, he says, why did you take someone else's? If you'd have asked me, I would have given you more. So David could have had all the wives he wanted, and Solomon, uh, in his largesse, decided to bequeath upon himself finally up to a thousand. Uh, 300 he married, and 300 were just uh, liberals. So um, he embarrassed himself however he wished. So he had his own children, and those were servants, born in his own house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. So the biggest rancher that the world had ever known. No cattle, no sheep, no goats, no camels, no everything that anybody had ever had. We think the King Ranch down in Texas is big, or we think uh, Ted Turner's ranches are big, and all that he was bought. But Solomon had the whole kingdom. He had the whole continent, ultimately. And he had as many animals as he wanted and more than anybody had ever had. He's a, he's a man that's beyond description in terms of his possessions and so on. They say, I gathered me also silver and gold. We've had movies about King Solomon's mines, which I think are uh, going to show up again real soon. I gathered me silver and gold and the particular treasure of kings and the provinces. So he brought things, as we know from other scriptures, 
from all over the world. So he gathered himself up the various things that were the delight of kings on other continents and other countries. He brought them so he could delight in them. Didn't matter what they were, he was a treasure seeker and a curiosity seeker, and he could have anything he wanted from everywhere. And he had his own band. I got these men singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So they didn't have DVDs and CDs and uh, whatever was the latest anymore on how you buy your music that somebody else produces somewhere else. He had the choir. He had the band. He had the orchestra. All kinds of music, all kinds of musical instruments. Uh, it is wise turned them to pagan idols. I'm sure they turned into their forms of music from all over the earth because he gathered women from all over the earth. And uh, I'm sure they brought instruments and their own type of music. So he didn't have just one genre of music. He had all kinds of instruments. And men and women who sang to him whenever he wanted uh, a concert. And David, his father, had done the same thing. He brought David, uh, I mean, not David, I mean, the king Saul had brought his father David in to play music for him because he would get in moods and he wanted mood music, something to help change his mood. So this, this was something the kings did. You didn't hire a man, you had one. So I was great this night and increased more than all that would before me in Jerusalem. I was the richest man who had ever walked the face of the earth. I had everything you could make. Also my wisdom remained with me. So through all this, he still had discernment, he still understood good and evil, and how to resolve difficulties among people. Verse 10, And whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. Anything he saw that he liked, anything he saw that he wanted, he simply took it. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Anything he thought that might bring him any degree of pleasure, he had. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. I was so happy and proud of myself in all the things that I had done and all that I could accomplish. Uh, is he really rejoiced in. And this was my portion of all my labor. So he had done all this work and massing incredible wealth, uh, incredible uh, collector's things from all over the earth. He spared himself nothing to have whatever he wanted. And he liked the things that he had. He loved his possessions. He rejoiced in them and all that he had done and all the work that he had done to gather it up. Verse 11, When I looked, and all the works that my hands had worked, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. When you have done everything you can do, 
You have taken every pleasure you can have. You have done everything that everyone else has ever even imagined or dreamed about. Withheld nothing, no joy from yourself. Anything you wanted to do. You had it all. Not part of it, all of it. Everything that you could imagine. And what did it do? It was all vanity and vexation of spirit and no profit under the sun. Even all that did not make him enduringly happy, enduringly fulfilled, because the eye is never filled with seeing or the ear with feeling or the hand with touching or the mouth with tasting or anything else. There is always more that you will want. And in some respects, the more you have, the more you do want, because you stretch your sensations and your desires out there, and once you've tasted those things and perhaps enjoyed them, all you want is more of them. So, do things make you happy? Do trips make you happy? Do a thousand women make you happy? Does all the wine you can drink, the best wine in the world, make you happy? Does having a summer house, a winter house, a spring house, and a fall house, and a few other houses you want make you happy? Does being the biggest rancher with the biggest hat in the world make you happy? No. You have to live with your own mind. And only any kind of peace and tranquility that you can find has got to come somewhere and from some other source than what you can see or hear or touch or taste. It has to come from somewhere else because no matter how much you have of it, you're frustrated. What about people we see in the entertainment in our own country today? Not all of them, but many of them. Uh, had difficulty, just as Solomon did. They've been in the public eye. They've had, in that sense, fame. They've had fortune. They've had anything they could possibly buy, yachts, houses here and there. Some buy their own islands and their own jet planes and their own yachts and virtually anything they might want. Uh, the alcohol, the drugs, and yet they wind up with miserable marriages, failed marriages, uh, hate, overdoses, and many of them died from overdoses, and, and they wind up miserable, frustrated people. They get involved with Satan and kill themselves in some cases. Uh, they're just on and on it goes that that fame and fortune does not lead to anything but vexation, vanity, and there is no profit in it all when it's all said and done. So we've got a, a quick view, as I'm going to say, and we'll get there uh, hopefully next time, God willing, and discuss this some more. But we're seeing that no matter what you do, where you go, what you have, there's something that is missing. There's something that will not work. And just as a human being on the face of this earth, you simply cannot find contentment, peace, and happiness without vexation, trouble, difficulty, and vexation. It's just there. It is the human frame 
It's what's been there since Adam and Eve committed that first sin. So what you and I are experiencing today is the same thing Solomon experienced, except that he had far more than we do. And human beings deceive themselves and think that if I just had this or if I just had that, then I would be happy. But Solomon's here in all his wisdom and all of his experience to say it doesn't work that way in human life. We compare ourselves among ourselves often. That's not in itself wise. Um, we compare ourselves to God and we get frustrated. But that's what we have to do. And we have to bend our effort towards something that will last because nothing in this earth will make us utterly content, nor will it go beyond 70, 80, 90 years if you're unlucky. So there you have it. And we'll continue later. So. Thank you for being there, hearing and listening, and I hope you're learning something from Solomon's experiences.